Uh, when evaluating close rate, what time frame do you feel is best? Trailing 30 days or 90 days? So let's start there and then it's a two-part question. So could you repeat the question, please? Already. So when evaluating the close rate, what time frame do you feel is best? Trailing 30 days or 90 days? I think trailing 30 days, you can get a pretty big, a pretty good uh, trend of what's going on. But uh, despite the fact we try to eliminate seasonal fluctuations, there is a seasonal impact. In our, I think if you want to really look at how a guy's doing, mm -hmm. right, you got to look at a quarter. But you can look at a month and get a pretty good idea. Yeah. I'm going to look at both metrics. Trailing 30 days is what I'm going to look at first, and, but I'm going to give them credit for the trailing quarter. Yeah. And obviously with the software that's available today, we can also actually uh, extrapolate, you know, not just what they've done in the past 30 days, but we can project where they would be for the year. Yeah, right? with absolutely. Pace, you know, absolutely. With the pace thing. So uh, the second part of this question is, if we have the approach uh, that Russ Horrocks advocates, my business partner, Russ, with Flow Odyssey, uh, and so therefore I would also advocate of resetting leads, as we talked about in an early episode, you know, we had different percentages, but roughly 60 to 70% of the time, it's a two call close, multiple touches. What window of time allows you to see uh, the, you know, the highest level of results? Meaning, if you're gonna do a two call close, in what window of time should the second call be? Well, let me put it this way, that in our company, we give our guys a week. Okay. Right, after a week, it's open season. Again, the company owns that lead. Now, I will make exceptions. If a guy says, listen, this particular lead cannot go to rehash because I'm legitimately working it, the guy's doing a refi, the guy's doing an addition on his home, whatever. There's all, you know, we have to make exceptions for the human element and there are things. As a general rule, if they haven't converted that lead in a week from the first call, then it's gonna be open season. Now, the except, if the exception applies, they would need to have a scheduled follow-up. Yes. Right? We're not gonna just let people hang on leads and have them floating around their truck um, because it's just, again, it's the organism. We all live off the organism, the company, and no single person is more important than the organism. The company owns those leads not the individual comfort advisor. Yeah, so tech selling versus comfort advisor. Okay. I'm going to assume that's a, a comfort advisor sales approach. Not Because my answer yeah. would be different for tech selling versus Give comfort advisor. Give us both. Tech selling, I'm going to give them seconds. several days. That lead then moves into the organization if the tech doesn't close it. Rehash leads. So we would have somebody internally, if we weren't using your application, that we would rehash that lead. So. Technicians get busy, especially in the busy season, yes. and they tend not to be great at the follow-up administration. So that is a different answer. A comfort advisor, I'm going to give a little longer period of time. They're professionally paid to do that, and they tend to be focused on the idea of following up. So I'll give them a week. Yeah, and they have so, to schedule that follow-up. But, but eventually, that has to be scheduled, and it, then it, that eventually would go into the internal rehash where somebody else would be following up inside the company to make that transaction clear. Did we get it or did we not get it? And we want to follow that thing until we know what the outcome was. It's not done until we know it was sold or it wasn't sold or you know it got installed by another company. We need, to, we need clarification on whether or not we got the lead. One of the things we do too is on our rehash, we make sure the comfort advisor gets a little something, something. Yeah, give right? me not a lot, yeah. right? Not enough that they'll yeah. willingly let it go and let the rehash department get it. Yeah. But you know, they're gonna get a few points in the deal because we don't want that, we don't want the rehash department to be the enemy. We want our salespeople to see them as a partner that can help them capture some of those lost deals. So they might get 3%, 4% of the deal. They're it's aligned. A lot. They're aligned. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff. Uh, what process do you use to analyze failures to learn from them the most? What process do I analyze failures? What process do you use to analyze failures? 
to learn, basically to learn from them. I don't know exactly what that means. Here's what I'll say. 99% of what I've learned in my life, I learned from my failures, right? It's like when things go well and things work out, half the time, I don't know exactly why. But when something goes south, I know exactly why it went south on me. And so I think there's an opportunity to learn the analyzing the failure. Uh, it's easy a lot of times, not all, all the time, but a lot of times easy to see what went wrong. And you can learn so much from those failures. I'm reminded of a, the Jack Welch story. I may have told this before that Jack Welch, uh, when he was running uh, GE, this business unit manager comes to him and made a decision that cost him $10 million. And it was a, a bad situation. The business unit manager writes a letter of resignation. He brings it to Jack Welch. And Jack Welch says, I won't accept this. He goes, what do you mean you won't accept it? I just lost $10 million. He goes, yeah, well, I just invested $10 million in your education. The last thing I'm gonna do is fire you, right? So there's a lot of learning that comes out of mistakes. Uh, so I agree with that. I do have a different take on how I'll process that though. So the culture that well, uh, Wally's describing is failure is a learning opportunity. So everybody has to feel good about the idea that they can raise that up and they're not going to get yelled at or complained at or they're gonna get bitched at, okay? Mm -hmm. So our process is we use discuss, conclude, commit, define the options and then figure it out. And we use a business plan on the cloud. So we have literally a database. It's a, it's a cloud-based file that's part of our business plan. And it literally is there and it's called master initiatives. And so we encourage every single person when something happens to put that into the cloud. And then what we do is every single month when we do our managers meetings, we access that and we prioritize those discussions. Okay. We discuss them, we make conclusions, we decide whether those, op can we fix it? Is there a process? Did, can we learn from it? So we absolutely put those on the table and discuss those as part of our monthly managers meeting. And then we'll make decisions based on that learning experience. So we force the issue of saying, we're not perfect. We know we're gonna make mistakes. I got one tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. I've got a mistake that we're going to talk about. A client, you know, raised some issues. We did screw up for sure. This, we own it. So we're going to put that out there and we're going to talk about that. And we're going to figure out how do we make sure that that does not happen again? That's how we learn. That's called a learning organization. Yeah. It's important. I, I, one of the things I talk about in some of my leadership training is to simply say, you know, how did, the, how did this happen? I'm not looking for guilt and shame, fault and blame, right? It's how did this happen? We've got ownership and responsibility somewhere. Okay, what story did I tell myself up front? What things were there? What red flags were there that I chose not to see, right? Uh, you know, what things that I look at through rose-colored glasses and, and, and optimize or think opti uh, optimistically that were, uh, you know, maybe I was a little overzealous, right? I always say, if you're gonna look at, an, uh, at a situation, you know, what's the upside? Because we'll always see the upside, especially entrepreneurs. We, we're great at seeing the upside, right? What's the downside? Be honest and, you know, and real about what the downside is. And then ask yourself this question, can I live with the downside? And, and, and so if you're not doing that on the front end, you certainly should do that on the back end when analyzing failure. Did I see it? Did I know it? Did I blow right through the stop sign and, and ignore the, uh, that sign? I make one last yeah, comment. Please. I own every single failure in my companies. You're the leader. I am the, I am the guy. So I take responsibility for every single failure. Therefore, every single failure that we have, every mistake that we make, I have to take ownership of that. Servant-based leadership demands that I accept responsibility for that. So it's my job to figure out how make, to make sure that doesn't happen again. Okay. What is a, uh, I know the answer, I know what the answer probably will be, but let's throw this one back to you, G-Man. Uh, what is a gr good gross profit dollar per man day goal? Well, it's gonna depend on your overhead per day. Uh, so um, the budget process is gonna define that. 
So if my overhead per day is $800 per crew day, and I've got three crews, that's $2,400 nut I have to cover, you know, so I want my jobs to recover more than that. So I set that target at 2,500 against 800. That's going to create a profit target. So we, back to net profit pricing, the budget reverses that and says the gross profit number is a derivative of the profit. So I want a 20% profit, right? So that gives me the $2,500. But listen, if my overhead per day is 1,500 per day and I got three crews and my nut's 4,500, 2,500 is not gonna get me 20% profit. So those numbers sequence based on the budget and the overhead per day. Okay, I concur, I concur. <laughs> That's why I went to him. <laughs> All right, we got two, two left to, to finish out this round. Um, what's your opinion on good, better, best pricing? I've been selling for 10 years without doing so. Absolutely, you have to have a good, better, best. Compromise choices is a basic uh, kind of element of consumer purchasing behavior. People tend to drift towards the middle, not the cheap one, not the high end one, they come to the middle. Uh, one of the stories I love to share uh, is, uh, is a story, I can't think of the name of the company now, it's the kitchenware stores in all the malls. Um, I forget the name of it, it's a big high end William kitchen. William Sonoma? William Sonoma, thank you very yeah. much. William Sonoma Chef G, baby. Uh, is kind of a high end, kind of, which is probably where you shop kitchenware, knives, cutlery, yep. you know, that kind of stuff. Yep. And they wanted to offer this bread baking oven in their stores. They found a bread baking oven that was a very high quality, moderately priced. They thought it would just sell like crazy, right? They bring it to the stores, they put it in the shelves, they can't give them away. So they started thinking, well, maybe our buyers, our customers expect a little higher end, you know? So they, they found another supplier, a higher end bread baking system, bread baking oven, and they started swapping out the inventory. Well, in that process, some of the stores had both items on the shelf. And of course, when that happened, they couldn't keep the, the first one, they couldn't sell. Now they were selling them like hotcakes, right? Because of compromise choices. If there's only one offer, the compromise choice to this offer is no, nothing. So we have to offer a compromise, compromise choice so that they will have something to, la to land on. It's just kind of common sense, right? Yes, yeah, same thing, uh, five positions, seven positions. There's a book called Positioning, mm -hmm. written by a guy named Michael Porter. Okay. It's a, it's a book everybody should read. Positioning, Michael Porter. It's called Porter. Positioning, Michael Porter. Michael Porter is a professor at Harvard, and he teaches those very psychological concepts, which is consumers will tend to gravitate, gravitate towards the middle, value-based, 83% of the people buy in the middle, okay? So some people will buy status, some people will buy cheap, inexpensive. So you have to understand the consumer psychology. So positioning strategy is simply giving the customer the options the second thing that I might add is I would go best, better, good. That yeah. whole idea of good, better, best, yeah. it bothers me that we're saying good, better, best. Highest level We want to start best, yeah. better, good, so that the consumer is feeling psychologically that we're giving them a better value, even though the prices are exactly the same on the matrix. Yeah. Start up here, bring it through the model. Yeah, a couple things on that. I'm a, a huge fan of, of the best, better, good approach. That doesn't suggest that there's only three levels, right? Five there, or seven. There's five or seven levels. And, and as a contractor, why are you looking at a manufacturer who offers seven or eight levels of product and you're choosing to only show a customer two or three of those? So I would challenge you to you know think of five, five to seven. We have seven in the book that we, we bring to our clients, number one. Number two is, um, yeah, there's basically three types of buyers. There's those who want the, you know, the total overall value, but the best level premium service like type thing. Then there's one, once, so go premium overall value. Then it's total value. They're looking for the best value for the dollar, okay, without breaking the bank. And then you have the economy or the, uh, you, know, you know, I don't want to say value price shoppers, but their value line, yeah. right? The, uh, you know, there. Um, the, other th the other side of that is, 
uh, let's see, 10, 10 years without doing so. Um, yeah, when you go to do this, there is a learning process. And so we have a class where we, t we talk about how to do this, uh, two classes actually, sales execution and the elevated consumer buying experience that Russ and I teach through EGI. So I would invite this person who asked this question you know, to get to the class and we can help you get on board with this. Uh, last question we've got in this series from LEAD 2021 to officially, officially close it out, right? Because it's the last question that we've got. It is, how do you bonus Rockstar installers? G-Man. Gross profit dollars based on the target for the budget. Again, same alignment with the sales professionals. Those budgets mirror the install budgets. So we look at capacity. Like we want to keep the install crews busy. Gross profit dollar production is what we're after. Recovery of overhead. So we give 25% of the incremental bonus attached to the gross profit overage. That becomes a bonus pool and we'll subdivide that up amongst the install crews. Service techs are in that same pool. Customer service dispatcher in that same pool. So we leave that to the manager. So the manager has a choice. They can keep all that money or they can distribute that to their team. So they write a program each year and they, we launch that usually in November as part of the business plan. So we have a budget, we have a compensation plan, we have all of the targets, and then our job is to figure out how to actually create some leads and sell some stuff, right? That's why we pay guys like you to come in and train us on how to sell so that we can produce that so that those budgets exist. The overage is 25% of the incremental gross profit dollars. That's the pool. The company keeps 75%. The 25% goes install service tax, right? Customer service dispatch. They're all sharing to some degree based on how the managers decide. Callbacks are counted against that? Callbacks are counted against that. All right, cool. Yep. I wrote a book on consistency, so I'll defer <laughs> to Pat, to, to G-Man on that. What I will say is that we do incentivize uh, our folks on quality of installation. If they pass inspection the first time, there's no callbacks, there's a bonus involved. And we track that on, a, on kind of a wall of fame. And, and, and people want to be on that wall of fame. We've had months uh, in the past where every installation crew has a 100% inspection pass on the first visit because we incentivize it and it's not a lot of money. A lot of it's the recognition of not having the callbacks, a little bit of money involved, but a lot of it's just the recognition. Can I add that EGIA website, Best Practices, yes, actually has a video and a spreadsheet <laughs> for tracking the install productivity? Right how well that crew is doing in relationship to the other crews, how well they're producing. So think about it this way. Wally is a performer. He's working on Saturdays. Mm -hmm. So he's producing more gross profit dollars. Sure. That is producing a bigger portion of the bonus. He gets a bigger piece of the pie because he's doing what I'm asking him to do. Yeah. There's a tool out there tool. that you might be able to find on the website, on the website. called Capacity Planning. It's productivity-based. And so... Most contractors do not track their productivity of their install crews. So I'm excited that this particular contractor is doing that. Yeah, I love it. it. It's something that should be tracked. It's one of those metrics within a metric. It's not going to define your success pattern, but it will define your bonus pattern. And you know one of the easiest ways to get these, well, to get installers to become rock star installers who increase that, that gross profit? Teach the, teach the installers, not just the service techs and the cover devices, 
teach the installers how to connect with homeowners and sell because there's an opportunity sometimes where the covered advisor didn't get the customer to buy something, such as let's say duct cleaning, but you open up the system and you say, Mr. Homer, come on down here and take a look what I found, right? And sometimes the homeowner may have thrown the salesperson a bone and said, hey, all right, I'm gonna give you the furnace sale, right? Yeah, I probably should have my duct scheme, just not gonna do it right now. But then the installer shows up in the uniform, right? The white lab coat sender, right? I mean, because nobody questions the dentist who says you need to get the cavity filled. You have a cavity, Mr. Cameron. Uh, all right, I'd like to get a second opinion. Right? I mean, I need to I'm, not, and I'm not sure if that's the willet or the fact you have cut in my mouth, right? <laughs> um, but you know what I'm saying? So we got to teach our, our installers uh, also how to connect with homers. The other thought you, um, you, you reminded me of when you said Michael Porter in a previous question from Harvard Business School, Harvard Business School was the one I think it was in the 70s. They did the study on the Polaroid camera, mm -hmm. 35 millimeter camera. Actually, I shouldn't say Polaroid, 35 millimeter camera. And that's where that study came from, offering one camera that was $100, another camera that was $200, and another camera that was $300. And how did the buying habits kind of get shaped by introducing a new level? Fast forward to 1994, uh, I think it was uh, Notre Dame, they did a study and they said, look, look, you know, if customers like options based on this philosophy and of positioning, how many options is too many options? Where it becomes paralysis by analysis? Yeah. And the answer was six to seven, mm -hmm. right? And I like seven because it's an odd number because there's still that middle. To your point, throughout the high and the low, there's still five left. So that, you know, just you, you triggered a thought there that the, the will it probably was a momentary lapse for a reason. It didn't catch up. Well, it was the boss hog that brought well, it, it all back. It was the boss hog, yes. All right. one, one interesting thing is, you know, you ask the question of a lot of contractors, if you, you, you consult a lot, how many people, you know, even offer like an HRV, ERV mechanical ventilation? So the vast majority don't. So competency and training on these positions matters as well. So you need to put your people in a position, the installers, the service techs, to actually know what the heck they're talking about so they feel comfortable offering those options as part of an accessory transaction. It's a, the vast majority don't. And, and it's a great thing because, the, you know, five levels, seven levels, you're giving customers something to say no to. And, and you know, visiting your company last week, what I said to the technicians is, giving customers something to say no to, what is the customer saying when they say no? They're saying to, yes, not that. But they are saying yes, they're making a choice. And if you can get customers, and if you maybe just wanna riff on this for a minute, uh, time them, uh, <laughs> just say, if you can get customers to make decisions, right, make choices, isn't that like half the battle? Absolutely, I mean, you want them involved in the process of elimination yeah. to a large degree. That's what you're talking about with seven options. You know, uh, you know, start, as, as Gary mentioned earlier, you start high and, and come down. The way I like to look at it is like, if you can picture like the system options as like a mountain and down here's the, I don't know, maybe the $10,000 option or $8,000 and up here's the $30,000 option, right? You've got a choice. You can start the boulder, you know, down here and try to defy gravity and exert a lot of effort to try to push it up to, you know, 12,000, 15,000, whatever. Or if you're given the opportunity to have a helicopter come in and drop that boulder at the top of the mountain, and you can use gravity in your favor and leverage and lower it down, it's gonna be a much easier process. So I like the idea you're talking about, this process of elimination. They're not saying no to you, they're saying no to the system, but in many cases, as we know, it's not so much no, it's more of a not yet. When you get me down here where I'm comfortable, then we can turn into a yes. And, and one last thought on top of it. Lead with monthly payments. Absolutely. Show the monthly payments as the, the larger font number and the, the total investment can be there, but lead with a monthly payment. Show the customer how what yep. you just made is val valuable is affordable. Uh, there. So gentlemen, I, I appreciate you letting me host. 
I think this was the best episode ever only because I hosted and you guys gave all the content. That's just and, a, and we stayed under per, 90 seconds. Personal Couldn't bias. More. <laughs> and thanks to our listeners for the question. Perfectly correct. <laughs>